Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, it's a banner day for Mortification of Spin, not only because we've earlier in the day recorded with a repeat guest, but once again, we are having the privilege of a repeat guest, someone who has been with us before, had a good experience, and has now come back on (laughs) to enter the Thunderdome that we know as Mortification of Spin. So... Someone very familiar with the underground bunker. Someone very familiar, someone who I think we count as a friend, and someone who I think we'll all learn a great deal from today. His name is Carl Truman. He is a teacher of some sort in an institution somewhere in the Northeast, and apparently he has written a book, and so we wanted to give him a little bit of airtime for this. Carl, it's really good to have you on as a guest this time. Now, now what that means in part is that you can only speak when spoken to. You understand that, right? <laughs> you don't okay. get any extra okay. donuts I, or anything. I have to right. say, there was more stuff you could have said about my greatness. I'm slightly <laughs> disappointed. There's, with there's the, a reason why we the didn't short, let you... modest introduction. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a reason why we didn't let you introduce yourself. Well, the reason why we're talking to Carl today is because, first of all, there's a new book hot off the presses. And then we also, before we end our time with him, want to talk about uh, an exciting opportunity that he is involved in. We'll let him tell us all about in just a little bit. But first of all, Carl, you are a contributor in a series of five books from Zondervan on the the, the so-called five solas of the Reformation. Of course, uh, this year is the kind of internationally recognized 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And Zondervan had this wonderful idea to uh, to produce five books on the five solos of the reformation they tapped you to write the volume on grace alone all five volumes are out now correct that's right all you can you can buy the complete set i believe yeah yeah well i was fortunate enough because i have connections to get an early copy and i read it and as much as i i wanted to dislike it i, I have to say i actually liked the thing and so uh it, it i'm touched it's, yeah. i'm actually choking up here right right to tell uh, that uh, right well all sarcasm aside it, it really is a wonderful book i like really all of, all of my books exactly i i really enjoyed reading the, the series is really good and honestly the, my two favorite the, there are two that i enjoyed they're all worth reading but two i particularly enjoyed was Matthew Barrett's volume on on Scripture Alone and yours uh, entitled Grace Alone. It's really, really good. Now, a couple questions. One, as we think about grace, sola gratia, grace alone, first of all, one of the reasons this is so important from a Reformed perspective is that when we say grace, when, when Reformed, when Protestants say grace, it's different from when typically a Roman Catholic would say the word grace, what what they mean by it. Why was the whole battle cry, if you like, of grace alone, so important at that time. What what was the reformers' understanding of grace that marked it off as so different from what they had inherited from the medieval church? That's a good question. I hate to give the the sort of the academics response, but I think first thing to do is to say that your medieval Catholicism was not monolithic. Mm-hmm. So actually, when okay. we look at the understanding of grace in the Reformation, the reformers are building upon and capitalizing upon 
a strand of teaching in medieval Catholicism that had preserved right. what I would regard as the biblical New Testament understanding of God's grace. Primarily, the Reformers saw God's grace as God's unmerited favor mm-hmm. towards human beings manifested in the incarnation, life, and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, its most obvious doctrinal implication, for example, would be predestination, understanding of God as sovereign in predestination, which comes out very clearly in the Reformation in the conflict between Desiderius Erasmus and Martin Luther in 1524-1525, which gives us Luther's great work, The Bondage of the Will, uh, one of the few books that he himself regarded as being worth publishing after he died. So really, grace connects very, very closely to understandings of election and predestination. What we find in the Reformation is that reformers like Luther, Calvin, Peter Martyr, Heinrich Bullinger, they're reacting against certain strands in late medieval Catholicism that really undermined that understanding of election and predestination, Mm -hmm. while standing actually in continuity. I think you can trace the basic Reformation Protestant understanding of grace alone as it connects to predestination election. You can trace that back through the Middle Ages to Augustine in the early church and then connect Augustine, of course, to his expositions of the Apostle Paul. Yeah, Yeah, but your answering of that question kind of relates to what I wanted to ask, and that is, I mean, they asked you to write this book, and you're a historian, church historian, and you spend a large portion of the book giving us a history yeah. Of grace. Why is that important to do? I was trying to make a general, I would say, methodological point there, and that is that I'm a big believer in creeds and confessions. I'm mm-hmm. a big believer that Christianity is not reinvented every Sunday, that we do stand as heirs to those who have gone before. I, it's basic, to put it in rather British terms, I suppose, basic decency to acknowledge with gratitude mm-hmm. those who've gone before us and who have taught truthfully and faithfully on these issues. It makes good sense to understand Protestantism is historically rooted. We've seen a lot of conversions from Protestantism to Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy Mm -hmm. in the last 10, 15 years by people who were never taught that Protestantism had historical roots. And when they start asking historical questions, Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy come in and trump us with easy, straightforward answers. So there was a general background to that. And then more narrowly, I think we we best understand Scripture on the doctrines of grace when we look at how Scripture has been understood historically by the great saints of the past, and we learn both from where they get things right and also from some of the things they've tried that have not gone so well. Mm-hmm. So I have a chapter, for example, on Thomas Aquinas. Not many Protestants would typically think of Aquinas as an ally on this issue, but actually Aquinas changes his position in his early work, mm. commentary on the books of sentences by Peter Lombard. He holds to, we might describe as a semi-Augustinian or even a semi-Pelagian position. By the time he writes the Summa Theologiae, the book of his mature years, he's much more in line with the Paul, Augustine, and then okay. anachronistically, the Luther, Calvin right. line of thinking. Interesting. Now, what is the significance of the alone after the word grace in terms of how it was conceived in the Protestant Reformation? What were they seeking to correct? Now, I understand on one level there's a very 
kind of easy one sentence answer to that question yep. that a lot of people in Protestant churches might be able to recite. Um, but give us a little bit more detail there. Well, again, I think the key years, 1524, 1525, the clash between Erasmus and Luther. And Erasmus has, you know, Erasmus has been under huge pressure from the early 1520s. He's the leading intellectual of his day. He's the leading critic of the church in many ways. He, his criticism of the church predates that of Luther. And he's under great pressure from the church, from the, the medieval Catholic church, to declare his position relative to the Reformation. Mm-hmm. And he finally does that in 1524 when he writes his diatribe on free will. It's not actually a great translation of the, of the term because the Latin term arbitrium has more judgment than will, but it's typically translated on the freedom of the will. And there he argues two things. He argues that uh, the Bible's teaching is unclear mm-hmm. on the nature of the human will, and really that then points to the lack of clarity in Scripture and allows him to say we need the papacy right. in order to tell us what Scripture means. And also it points away from what is very, very important for Luther, and that is assurance of salvation. Yeah. Luther's point, one of his points in response is if we don't know the status of the human will, if we are not sure that the will is bound, then we will start to think that salvation is to some extent dependent upon us, upon our wills. Mm -hmm. And if salvation is even a fraction dependent upon us, we can never have assurance. Salvation has to be the unilateral work of God. Otherwise, we can never be assured that God is gracious to us. So grace alone is a critical pastoral doctrine in many ways because it undergirds the emerging Protestant desire to articulate the Christian faith as one which is the normal experience of which is that of assurance, which was not a medieval doctrine at all and continues not to be a a Roman Catholic doctrine. The Protestant notion of assurance is foreign, deeply foreign and alien to medieval Catholicism and indeed to modern Catholicism. Yeah. What does the modern Roman Catholic Church think about grace alone today well again that's a difficult has it question. changed at all yeah it's it's a difficult question because the catholic church is often less monolithic than we imagine mm-hmm. it to be and even in luther's day there were those who held to the dominicans for example mm-hmm. would have held to a fairly classic position on the sovereignty of god mm-hmm. On the other hand, the group from which Luther emerged, the, the, the sort of the, the modernist theologians, mm-hmm. the, the modern way theologians, were much more, we would describe them as semi-Pelagian, allowing okay. significant freedom for the human will. Come down to the present day, you know, the Roman Catholic Church is a total mess. Right. There are people in the Roman Catholic Church, theologians, that I would certainly read on these topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of the 20th century Dominican, Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, Wow, that's awesome. (laughs) Well, I I think Garrigou Lagrange is a good commentator on Thomas (laughs) and pretty good on on the issue of God's sovereignty. Mm -hmm. There are other theologians like Hans Kung, a complete lunatic, as as far as I'm concerned. Uh, So again, you you would have to choose your theologian. You could read read Matthew Levering today and be very helped by him. Matt Levering is extremely good on these kind of issues, on on the doctrine Mm -hmm. of God. The other thing, of course, in in Roman Catholicism, grace has – 
you, you see this in the New Testament. Grace, I think, is used in two ways in the New Testament. Primarily, it's used for the favor of God as manifested ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But at other times, it's used for the transformative work of God in the life of the believer. And we might distinguish Protestantism and Catholicism by saying that Catholicism tends on the whole to accent the latter of those two, that grace is a transformative thing Mm -hmm. and ties that very, very closely to the sacramental system of the church. So when we look at the narrow view of grace in terms of predestination, I think I could find certain Roman Catholic theologians with whom I would basically agree. Mm -hmm. When you broaden grace out and take the full Roman Catholic understanding of grace and how that ties to the sacraments, at that point, I'm going to have to say, well, I I can't go there. I don't think that grace is given in the sacraments in quite the realistic way that Roman Catholics believe, and that the sacraments are not in and of themselves transformative. So it's one of the things that I, when I did the book, the editor Matthew Barrett, it was great working with Matthew, he was perturbed by my chapter on Aquinas <laughs> and made me insert a couple of footnotes to the effect that I'm dealing with a very narrow strand of Roman Catholic right. teaching on grace here. Actually, in broader terms, you'd have to connect it to the sacraments. So. Yeah. And I was very grateful to Matt Levering, uh, the Roman Catholic theologian. Uh, I got him to look at the manuscript mm-hmm. for me, and he was very helpful in in making sure that I expressed our differences with Roman Catholicism in an accurate yeah. way that represented his thinking. Yeah. yeah. Well, even when we use the, the term grace alone in the Protestant church, I think there's so many different ways that people throw that term around. And a lot of times it just becomes kind of an, an empty sentiment. And you really discuss yeah. that a lot in the book. Yeah, I mean, the great example of that was uh, Tully and Chivijan's interview with Joe Scarborough, which is yeah. where I start. Yes. Mm-hmm. Chivijan is interviewed on the Morning Joe program, and he talks for nine minutes about grace and never mentions the name Jesus. Right. Yeah. Oh, and I think when you detach grace from God's concrete actions in history, culminating in Christ, mm-hmm. what you do is you turn grace into a divine sentiment. Right. So God forgives sin because, hey, he shrugs his shoulders. Mm-hmm. He's, he's like an effete parent mm-hmm. who hasn't got the mm-hmm. courage to face the reality mm-hmm. of the rebellion of the children and just shrugs his shoulders and, and forgives. Whereas grace in the Bible, I mean, I'm, again, I make this point relative to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Again, we often think, yeah, we think about Old Testament sacrifice, but think about being there. Mm-hmm. Think about the bellowing of the oxen. Mm-hmm. Think about the blood spilling everywhere Mm -hmm. as the animals are sacrificed. Grace is a, in those situations, a terrifying thing Mm -hmm. in some ways. It's not not a sentimental thing. It's not a sentimental thing. It's achieved through great sacrifice. And then you think of Christ on the cross. I don't want to see somebody crucified. Mm -hmm. That would be a horrific Mm -hmm. thing to see. Mm -hmm. And what you do is if you talk about grace without continually bringing it back to the Lord Jesus Christ, you turn it into an abstract thing, or you turn it into a divine sentiment, and do not do justice to the, dare I put it this way, the blood and guts and trauma (laughs) Mm -hmm. of the Bible's tale of how God is gracious. I mean, even going back to the garden, what does the Lord do? You know, the fig leaves are not good enough. Right. The beast is torn apart, and Adam and Eve are clothed with the bloody hides of these creatures. There is a a raw horror to grace Mm -hmm. that I think is 
the Chavidian view of grace, well, as we now know, where it right. ended with him, but an utter travesty right. of biblical teaching, well, and that people were taken in by taken in by staggering, it. yeah, Absolutely and staggering. yeah, Presbyterians, uh, Reformed uh, yeah. people were were taken in by this thing, and it really did damage in my denomination. Did a great yeah. deal of damage because you had so many PCA pastors preaching this Chavidianized grace. And it's leaving a yeah. bad legacy. It wasn't just antinomianism; it was also sentimentalism. It absolutely well, that's what was. I was say, with that sentimentalism and the antinomianism, yeah. uh, there's not any room to talk about holiness. No, nope. which you, when you're describing you know, the cross or the Old Testament sacrificial system pointing to the cross, it's right there in your face. Yeah. You yeah. have to deal with holiness and sin. Yeah, exactly. Well, I encourage people to get the book. Carl, would you say, I mean, th- this series of books is not written to be scholarly tomes. They are written for an informed, popular yeah. level. Yeah, and, I, and my book's divided into two. The, I mean, the first part is survey the Bible's teaching and grace and then the historical narrative. And then the second half is the means of grace. Right. The church is an act of God's grace. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, the preaching of the word as acts of God's grace. So I try to make it a very practical book. Yes. And, and the last chapter is it's very practical. Is sort of you know signs of a church that mm-hmm. takes grace seriously. If your church takes grace seriously, these sort of things will So will what are follow. some of those yeah. practices that a, a church that takes grace alone Preaching seriously. the word will be absolutely central. Mm-hmm. The church will be understood as an act of God's grace and not a human response to God. I think baptism and the Lord's Supper will be taken seriously mm-hmm. as well. Not in a Roman way. Right. But just because Rome makes too much of the sacraments doesn't justify us making too little yeah. of right. them. And we have a very rich tradition on that front. So I think that it comes down to how seriously you take the church and what the church looks like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I think that actually makes the Christian life much simpler when you understand mm-hmm. God's grace. You know, America is a very technique oriented mm-hmm. society we're always looking for the magic bullet right. or the technique that will solve problems i think if you have a good understanding of god's grace it takes a lot of pressure mm-hmm. off because the pastor's just he's got to preach the people have to listen mm-hmm. you've got to administer the sacraments and you trust the lord for the increase it doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing but it, it means we don't have to be looking for the latest gimmick or right. the latest program to make our churches grow. We have God's promises attached to his means of grace, and we need to take him at his word. Good, good. Well, we have two subjects we're talking with you about. You have just recently, you know, I mean, Princeton has kind of made you the president of their divinity school, something like that, Carl. Isn't that what happened? (laughs) No, it was kind of funny when I applied for the extra study leave. I believe the discussion at the board meeting was, it's not Princeton Seminary, is it? <laughs> right. And when it was discovered it was Princeton University, it was okay. But it was okay yeah, so but, our friend Carl is going to be spending some time at Princeton University for, how long is this fellowship? It's 10 months, from September the 1st this year to July the 1st next year. And what's it called, and what is the purpose of this? Uh, I'm going to be the, uh, the William Simon Fellow at Princeton University in Religion and Public Life, and it's part of the James Madison Program, which is a wonderful program run by Robbie George, mm-hmm the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University. And it's really, it's a very well-funded program that allows academics from other schools, smaller schools, to spend a time of intensive research and also scholarly fellowship with others on the program, because there's 10 or 11 of us going to be on Mm -hmm. the program, talking, reading, thinking about issues that matter in 
public life today. And it's, you know, by and large, academics of a small c conservative persuasion, mm-hmm. whether we're talking theological or political. It's Robbie George's way of encouraging Mm-hmm. conservative academics not all conservative academics cornell west right, was right. a madison fellow last year and of course robbie george is big friends right. with cornell west mm-hmm. um, i have to tell the story i was at a conference on the madison program just the other week and the room was full of, of pretty important people i guess and at some point there's a panel discussion and robbie george is chairing it and he says yeah brother west will take your question and it was cornell west mm-hmm. Right at the back. I've never been in a, a lecture situation where everybody in the lecture room turned around to, <laughs> to look at the, at the person asking the question. Yeah. But I think uh, on that level, Professor George is also trying to make the Madison program model appropriate, polite yeah. interaction. In the current highly polarized right. political situation, a highly polarized situation yeah. relative to public discourse. Now, you're going to be working on a particular project yeah that is of great interest to you actually great interest to a lot of people and in one way or another kind of finds its way into a lot of our own discussions tell us a little bit about that well the origins of the project i became fascinated a year 18 months two years ago by the speed at which transgenderism carried all Mm -hmm. before it and the total a the inability of people in the public square seemingly to make a case against it and secondly the absolute shock of christians Mm-hmm. that this stuff was not only be taken seriously, but was already the normative orthodoxy. Yeah. And I had an experience in my own public school district where I I was recruited by a friend, he's a conservative Roman Catholic lawyer, who got me to write a letter and sort of front a question about transgender bathrooms in the local public mm-hmm. schools. And I live in the same suburb that Cruella de Vil does. This is a, you know, it's a traditional Philly, lower middle class, yeah. you know, not a radical hate Asbury kind right. of place at all. Absolutely shocked at the number of people who either couldn't understand what the problem was mm-hmm. or were too frightened to speak out right. about the problem. And that led me to ask a broader question. Well, if this is happening so quickly, it means that the root cause of it must be very deep and of great long standing. And I think often what Christians tend to do is we tend to focus on the immediate problem, be it gay marriage or transgenderism, and fail to set it within the longer story of what's been going on in society. Mm -hmm. Rusty Reno has a great phrase I've heard him use. He said, you know, Christians fight yesterday's battles using the day before yesterday's weapons. <laughs> and, and, and so what I've received the funding for next year is to write a book that really looks at how the understanding of the human person has changed over 200 years. Because transgenderism, I think, is the presenting problem that arises out of a highly psychologized view of human identity mm-hmm. and human personality. And that didn't happen yesterday. Right. The roots of that actually, I think, go back into the Middle Ages, but you've got to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start my discussion probably in 1800 with the preface to William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge's lyrical ballads, where they lay out a new philosophy of poetry, where poetry is not designed to reflect the great glories of nature out there. Mm-hmm. Poetry is to reflect the psychological 
recollections and experiences of experience of the world out there. In right. other words, there's this, it reflects this great inward shift. Right. And I think that goes some way to explain why, hey, if I think I'm a woman, that's what I must be right. because it's what goes on in my head mm-hmm. that determines my identity, not What nature, goes on in my DNA. Not my body. Mm-hmm. Nature, the physical world, has no authority. Right. It's mm-hmm. purely psychology that is authoritative. Yeah. It's almost like kind of a, a contemporary Gnosticism where yeah. there's a uh, almost a physical reality takes on kind of a vulgarity about yeah. it. And what yeah. matters mm-hmm. is my experience, my psychological state. Robbie George did a great article in First Things maybe five, six months ago. He actually first gave it as a lecture at Westminster. Hmm. But he did a great article connecting not ancient Gnosticism to modern yeah. day. Yeah. transgender issues. Yeah. That's the part of the transgender argument that I just don't get, though, because then what do they do? They mutilate mm. themselves right. and they change their body, which yeah. isn't supposed to matter as much as their insides. Right. It's caught on a basic incoherence. My body doesn't matter to my identity, but my body matters so much to my identity right. that right. I need to shift it to conform mm-hmm. with what's happening. And then you all have to mutilated and you, yeah, Exactly. And as Camille Paglia has recently said, it doesn't matter how you chop your body around. And Camille Paglia, by the way, she's a lesbian feminist. <laughs> right. You know, I'm not. We're not drawing right. on an OPC elder's wife here. <laughs> Camille Paglia says, you know, every single cell of your body remains coded. Right. right. Every can, single cell. You can chop parts of your anatomy off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, we had our friend uh, Frank Beckwith making that point. Somebody goes into a doctor and says, "I want my arm cut off." Yeah. We send them to a psychiatric ward. Right. Somebody goes into a doctor's office and, pardon the expression, right. but asks to have their penis cut mm-hmm. off. We get them hormone treatments and the insurers and, will and, pay for and it. And ESPN gives them an award for being the hero yeah. of the year. Yeah. Yeah. It's so that there are some very interesting uh, metaphysical and intellectual problems in transgenderism. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Well, this is good because you as a Protestant, one of the things we've talked about is that some of the best thinkers and contributors to the discussion on this and related matters have been Roman Catholics, people like Robbie George. Robbie George, Ryan Anderson. Mm -hmm. What is it about these Roman Catholics that have made them so good at discussing this in a way that is intellectually superior than what we get a lot from Protestants? I think a number of things. One, I think Catholics, which are well-trained in their tradition, are taught metaphysics. Mm -hmm. And I think metaphysics is important. I think Catholicism has always taken the human body, mm-hmm. made the human body important in a way that Protestantism hasn't. Right. Even down to, you think about our churches, you don't tend to get the phenomenon of Roman Catholic churches being beamed in by satellite. You right. have to be there to take mass. Now, mm-hmm. let me say for anybody out there, <laughs> not approving of the mass at right. this point, right. but I am saying you physically got to be present right. for grace in right. Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. We've det- Attached mm-hmm. in some ways, grace from bodily presence. Yeah. yeah, you can watch the telly or you can mm-hmm. download it. So I think there's a tradition of taking the body seriously. Yeah. And what we're seeing in the Western world now is this collapse of the authority of the body. And Protestants just don't have a tradition of reflecting on that. Mm-hmm. I think we can helpfully borrow from Catholicism yeah. on this. I mean, I do think Robbie George and Ryan Anderson stuff is is great. Mm-hmm. I think Robbie George is too optimistic. Maybe next year I'll cure him of his optimism. <laughs> you never know. Well, he but seems to be a happy guy. He plays the banjo. He plays He's the, the blue banjo. Grass. He's yeah. far too happy, I think, for a man who really understands what's going on. <laughs> well, hopefully um, he'll get enough time with you and we can change that. <laughs> my son is a banjo player and his big ambition next year is, Dad, if you could get me to sit in with Robbie George, <laughs> play the banjo with him, that would be that my would be dream awesome. come true. There you go. There so you video go. that for yeah. the show. Are you allowed to say who your publisher is? 
ideas for this yet? Crossway have offered me a contract, which I've accepted for it. Good. The book will be called Christianity and Its Discontents. It's a riff off the of Freud's right. great little book, Civilization, Its Discontents, mm-hmm. because I think Freud has a lot to say, actually. Mm-hmm. to the popular imagination on this issue. And it should be coming out in right, 2019, yeah. I hope. I said to Crossway before I signed the contract, I want it to be, I don't want it to be a fluff book. Right. I want it to be seriously footnoted. Maybe we'll do a, a shorter abridged mm-hmm. version, but I want this to be a book which is seriously engaging right. with the best thinkers, both pro and con, the mm-hmm. position I want to make. And yeah. I hope that it will be a book that, Protestant Christians can read and will help them to understand why many of our arguments just don't work anymore mm-hmm. and why the world is flying out of control yeah. Good. as far as we can see it. Good. Well, we'll look forward to that. All right. Well, I, I guess- close with myself and offer great thanks for you, <laughs> you know, Thank you for giving I us know. your precious talk. Yes. This is the part, I guess, where we have, have to thank so our guests for coming on today and- <laughs> And so, yeah, I guess, thank you. <laughs> can you say that again louder? <laughs> humbly, can you humbly thank me? <laughs> thank you! <laughs> Carl Truman for coming on today. And I'd like to say it's been a pleasure, but, you know, <laughs> I don't know. So, it can't be stopped. <laughs> and for our listeners, uh, if... if if you want to just uh, stroll on by our website and maybe we'll be writing about, you know, seven reasons why we shouldn't invite guests back on yeah. for another interview after this or seven reasons why we may be spoiling our guests too much and they think they're entitled to say the things that they say when they're on our program. And while you're there, you can enter to win a copy of Carl's book, Grace Alone, through Zondervan Publishers. And also, if you'd like to leave us a donation, we are a donor-supported podcast, and we would very much appreciate any financial gifts and definitely your prayers, too. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... Was there kind of one big defining moment, or was it a longer, drawn-out, more subtle process? For me, it was definitely a longer, Mm -hmm. subtle process. But to see that kind of thoughtful ordering of things and the protection that that affords to churches, to pastors, to the laity. And I really had to understand covenant theology. Right. To understand baptism. Right. But I still don't know what that means to redeem the culture. Right. I don't know what it means. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. (laughs) 
I think I was brilliant. I thought she was <laughs> amazing. Maybe the best podcast we've done. Oh, this thing is going to put I, us on the map. What's the American phrase? I knocked that out of the ballpark. <laughs> right. We'd say I hit it for six. Right. I've been tired. Yeah. You know, enough of this you know. slumming around with, with two-bit, you know, D-list guests. We finally got Truman on. You know, sometimes I'm awed to be in my own presence. Oh, Can guess. you imagine what a burden that I, is? I can't. I'm just an awesome guy. Whew, been in an underground else. bunker yeah. too long. Yeah. Man. I'm humbled to be in my he's, presence. He's a, a product of thinking <laughs> introspectively. 